Hello, and welcome to Raising Eco-Minimalists, a podcast that acts as a community for those who are raising kids who care about their mind, body, and the earth. I'm Laura, your host, mom to a five-year-old and self-described anxious eco-minimalists. Thanks for joining. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Raising Eco-Minimalists. Today, I am incredibly excited to be joined by Caitlin of Invisibly Stitched, and we're going to be talking about the International Dark Sky Organization and about artificial light pollution at night, which is something that I don't know if a lot of people are aware of. So first of all, though, Caitlin, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So my name is Caitlin Johnson, as you said, and uh, by day I work as a scientist in the renewable energy industry. And by night, I call myself a maker. I do a lot of sewing mainly, but I also, I like to dabble in other things. I, uh, I've always, always loved nature and science growing up. I remember stories of my parents telling me I would just be very insistent on going nature on nature walks as a kid. And eventually I discovered that I really wanted to be an astrophysicist. And so I went to graduate school and I have a PhD. PhD in physics and studied astrophysics for years. Eventually, after a lot of introspection, I realized I uh, I wanted to pivot and work on solutions to climate change and ultimately contributing to a society where the natural world doesn't need protecting. It's just part of who we are. And so that's where I am today. Uh, I'm very passionate about a lot of different topics, uh, sewing and making, as well as the past few years, I've become incredibly interested in light pollution and protecting the night sky. And lastly, in 2020, I had my first baby, a daughter. Uh, So now the role of of a, a parent is also my identity. So I am currently working on raising my own eco-minimalist. Yeah, well, congrats. Uh, I remember following you on Instagram, and I don't think props is the right word, but um, just (laughs) hats off to you for not only raising a newborn, but doing so during a pandemic. I can't even imagine how difficult that must have been. So, um, It's definitely an experience. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully one we never live through again. (laughs) Oh, agreed. So, yeah, it's it's interesting because we... I don't know how we first started following each other, but we actually live really close to each other. Yeah. (laughs) And you had posted something in one of the Facebook groups, I think, or maybe on Instagram, it doesn't matter, about starting an international dark sky organization chapter for the Twin Cities. And I was super intrigued because I had never heard of not only that organization, which we will get into about what that is, but also what it aims to bring awareness to, which is artificial light pollution at night. Can you kind of tell us what that is? Yeah, absolutely. At a high level, artificial light pollution is, it's the excessive use of artificial light. Um, And so there's two pieces to it. There's the excessive use and the artificial use. And so by artificial, we mean light fixtures such as interior or exterior lighting on houses and buildings, streetlights, even stadium lights at schools or outdoor events. So that's sort of what we mean by the, the artificial piece. Now, we as humans, we do need a light at night, right? We, we can't see at night. Imagine trying to drive down the road or walk down the sidewalk when there's no light. You know, that's just not realistic. And so light pollution is really focused on the piece of, of excessiveness. So it's really about illumination that is unnecessary, that's wasteful, and that's harmful. And so the purpose of light at night 
is really simple. It's just to illuminate something that needs to be seen. Anything else is wasteful. And so you can break it down a lot further into different types of light pollution, but I, I think ultimately that covers it. Just unnecessary light at night. That's super interesting. Never thought about it in terms of the whatever is extra beyond what we need to see. That's that's a really interesting definition. So how is all this excess light pollution causing problems at night? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways. And it, it actually impacts almost every single living thing on the planet, light does, mainly because we take our, our internal sort of cues from light nightly and at a seasonal level. So our circadian rhythms that sort of dictate how we sleep and some of the hormonal processes in our bodies are are dictated by light cues. So in the evening, we see more red light. It's warm, sun, don't think warm, red, red, pink, orange type sunsets. And then in the morning, we see blue light, uh, twilight. And so that is, is a cue to our body to, to do different processes than, for example, in the evening. And so many different types of animals, as well as insect uh, plants, all respond to light cues as well. That's fascinating. So we all, I, well, I don't, I want to just talk to everybody, but I think the majority of us know that blue light at night is not good for us, right? Yeah. That's why they tell us to stay off electronics or install blue light blockers or wear the glasses or yeah, what have definitely. you. But that makes sense now as to exactly why. And I actually never thought about the reason our phones have, you know, red light filters to turn on in the evening is because mm-hmm. of that matches like the sunset and stuff. So yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like I'm going to say that pretty much after everything you said, <laughs> this, is, this is also all new to me. And I just, I think it's all so interesting. So, mm-hmm. okay. So I found a couple of statistics that I wanted to share because as I just said, I don't necessarily think that this issue is as widely known as say litter or other types of pollution. So I just wanted to quickly kind of go through the statistics and then we, you know, they, we can kind of continue on with the questions. So the first one, is, these are all from the darksky.org. And the first one is light pollution is increasing worldwide at twice the rate of global population growth. The next one is eight out of 10 people live under a light polluted night sky. And then the last one is at least $3 billion is wasted on outdoor lighting each year in the U.S. And virtually every species studied has been harmed by light pollution. I think you caught you uh, touched on that already. But one thing that I was really shocked to find out is that one of the biggest issues of light pollution at night is that it is a contributor to climate change. Can you kind of share how this light pollution acts as a contributor? Yeah, definitely. Ultimately, it's it's contributing to our excessive use of resources and electricity. And if that electricity is generated via fossil fuels, we're driving climate change via greenhouse gas emissions. And so Switching to light bulbs like LEDs can significantly improve the energy efficiency of these light bulbs. Um, actually, Project Drawdown, if you've heard of that before, it's a really great project that lists a whole bunch of different solutions to climate change and how they can draw down or reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And switching to LEDs just from an energy efficiency perspective is one of the great solutions. And I do have to say that it's, it's really interesting because we have to be careful. Uh, there's something called the rebound effect that we see sometimes in sustainability psychology um, and just human psychology (laughs) and it's really really interesting because sometimes we think well something is more efficient our light bulbs are now not using as much electricity if they're leds that's great i'm 
saving greenhouse gas emissions, money, so I can just use more of them, right? <laughs> and so the psychological rebound happens where maybe a new light bulb might be reducing our electricity use by, I don't know, say 80%. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's reducing the amount of electricity that it could use by a certain amount. But we don't actually reduce it that much because we as humans have this sort of psychological rebound effect where I think, well, it's okay, like I'm being more efficient, so I can just use more of it. And so it does decrease from our initial state, but not as much as it could be. I will be the first to admit that I am guilty of that in some ways because we are kind of a different example, but we have chosen to participate in our energy company's 100% wind program. And so there may be some days that I'm just feeling lazy or, oh, I think I, I'll be fine using the, you know, the extra electricity at this point because I'm using all wind. It's it's fine, but it's still resources, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's still, <laughs> it still uh, requires windmills and maintenance for those windmills and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can see how when we're looking at this issue, how that can really play into exactly what you were saying. Yeah. And then since light pollution does impact every living thing, it's unfortunately contributing to loss of biodiversity, which um, I think is just as important as climate change. And you know that impacts our ecosystems. And without healthy ecosystems, we can't be as resilient to that changing climate as we might otherwise be as well. So we're all related. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a really great point. Among those, t- uh, on top of those two issues, you touched already on some of the health implications, interrupts our circadian rhythms and stuff. And I just wanted to point out, since this podcast is about parenting and or being a guardian to kids, that this includes affecting our kids. So even if we're not showing them screens at night or we're making sure to be really mindful of that, even just the fact of having a ton of light in the outdoors, that's affecting them too. So what are some ways that we could talk to kids about light pollution at night? I think there's so many different ways. And of course, my kid is only, you know, an infant right now. (laughs) Um, But I've done a lot of teaching and, and outreach for museums and such and talk to kids about this. And so there's so many different ways. One way is to approach it from a sleep hygiene perspective. Things like topics like circadian rhythms and reproduction of birds might be a little bit too complex and technical for some kids. Maybe your kid is really into that. That's great. But uh, I do, I really value sleep hygiene, the idea of sleep hygiene. So protecting our sleep by winding down at the end of the day, reducing our light, um, you know, turning screens off, getting rituals that sort of get us in the mood to go to sleep, because that's really important to our own mental and physical health, like incredibly important. And so I think that is definitely one way to approach it is, is from a sleep hygiene perspective. I think another way is to get kids excited about nature. And one of your previous episodes talked a lot about connecting kids with nature. And we can do that with the night sky as well. And approaching it from the angle of learning about nocturnal animals and the unique ways that they live at night. And so we want to protect their home, their ways of living and and shutting out the lights for them as well. Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, I'm just, my gears are turning. I'm like, we could get <laughs> books about nocturnal animals and then go outside and read yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. And for those interested, that thank you for referencing that episode. It was episode five with Just Purcell, if anyone is interested in checking that out. But yeah, no, that's a great idea. I, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but it, it seems obvious now that you said it, but it wasn't something that I would have come up with, I don't think. So <laughs> why do you think that this issue isn't more widely known? 
You know, that's a really good question. And I didn't really think of it as such an, uh, a widespread issue, like a, a general issue until maybe five to 10 years ago at this point. But I think that I thought about it as light pollution is just inevitable. Part of development, right? Part of living in a city, part of having buildings and schools and streets. And it's a nuisance, but I didn't really see it as an issue. Sort of thought of it as being, you know, necessary for safety at night, right? We as a society, we like, Having light at night is great for our safety and to be able to do things that we enjoy doing at night. So it's sort of worth the annoyance. And so I think people didn't realize it was an issue. And it's more about more of like an astronomer's issue, right? <laughs> but it really isn't. There are, are many ways that it's, it's harming us and our environment. And I just think they're not talked about. I think, I think we think that it's necessary for safety which um, is too bad. Yeah, and I, I do have a question about that. First, I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts on why lighting at night has increased over the past few years. Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think it is part of what I mentioned earlier with the, the use of LEDs and that sort of uh, rebound effect a little bit. But I think that a lot of places are, are under development. Uh, rural communities are under development, which... It can be good, depending on how you define development and those metrics that you use, right? But it's not being done uh, intentionally. The lighting is not being done intentionally. And I think, again, it just gets back to this issue. We think that it's it's safe. And so we just put more lights up without a lot of intentional thought about it. That leads me to my next question, which is, as a as a parent of a young kid and a woman, I do feel safer having more streetlights in my neighborhood or if I'm having to walk out to my car from somewhere at night. Uh, I, I do appreciate having the extra lights. But I saw that when I was researching for this episode that statistics actually show that there really isn't a correlation that an air that more lights makes an area safer. So how can we balance feeling safe at night, but also being mindful and addressing this issue of light pollution at night? Yeah, this is a really great question because safety or reducing light, it's not an either or. Uh, and a lot of people I have found are hesitant to reduce light because of this concern, which is completely valid. But I think that a lot of this gets back to the, the fact that light pollution is really excess above lighting what needs to be seen. So I totally resonate with what you said about being a woman walking to my car at night. Um, I think about sitting at bus stations after dark in the winter, riding home, and it is really nice to have that light. And I think that it can be done very intentionally. So you can put up shields around so that the light is focused down onto the ground or the people and not radiating upwards. There can be motion sensors added to light. Motion sensors are a huge, huge way of mitigating light pollution. They're just fantastic, mainly because that way you're only lighting up an area when there's motion, when there's people nearby, and sometimes, you know, some animals. But I think back to, to growing up in our neighborhood where there were some houses that had lights on all the time. And if someone was home or coming in, you know, I, we didn't notice. But there were houses that had motion sensor lights in their backyard. And anytime those lights went on, we would look out in the backyard because we knew most likely there was a deer or something. We wanted to check out the deer or the fox. But that change, that change of having a motion sensor and seeing that light go on, that can draw our attention to uh, places and people more than just constant lighting. So if someone is, for example, trying to break into a house or a school, 
or some other building and we see that light go on and it draws our attention, we're more likely to to look at it and notice that something is actually happening. Take whatever respective action needs to be taken than if the light is constantly on. And so that is just those two ways. Shielding a light and adding motion sensors are such good ways to reduce light pollution and make sure that we're, we're doing it safely and keeping the humans that have to be out at night safe as well. That's such a good point. I think kind of that thing where if it's always on, it fades into the background at some point. And I, you know, I, I do also appreciate that. So I used to take the bus to work and we, again, we live very close and <laughs> here in Minnesota in December, it's, I mean, 4.30, it's dark. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, most people are still either just getting out of work or not even out of work yet. So yeah, it, I think that... When I was thinking through this, I, I felt like that safety piece would be the hardest sell for people. So thank you for addressing that for us. Mm-hmm. I have a, kind of a two-part question. What are some things that we can do as homeowners? I know you've mentioned a few things so far to help reduce artificial light pollution at night. And can you also kind of expand on what artificial light pollution would be for a home. So is it lights that we leave on inside at night if we're not using them, or is it solely outside lights? Yeah, good question. So yeah, I did mention the the motion sensors and shielding lights so it doesn't shine up into the, the sky as being things that homeowners can do. Another really, really great thing that we can do to reduce the impact of light pollution if we have to have lights on is uh, choosing warmer colored lights. So you mentioned already that blue light and screen time uh, before bed. Mm-hmm. So if you go to a home store, Menards, Home Depot, whatever your local neighborhood home store is, and look at the back of of light bulb boxes, they'll actually have a temperature on it. Uh, It'll say something like a large number and then K. So for example, 3000 K, 3000 Kelvin, and that indicates the temperature of the light. And so you want warm lights, red lights, and maybe you actually want to go as far as putting red lights or just something that's warmer, that's that's yellow. And sometimes that'll also be indicated by the term soft weight instead of daylight. And so if you do put lights out as a homeowner, uh, definitely choose some of those, those warmer colored bulbs. <laughs> no, it's a really great actionable tip. Yeah, and you can get really technical in terms of the colors. But yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I just like to look for soft weight instead of, sure. you know, daylight. Yeah. In terms of exterior versus interior light at night, a lot of the issues from lighting, both interior and exterior, are glares. So if you can see the light bulb, then it's probably an excessive amount of light, right? Then you want to shield it. And so I think that if you're standing on the streets and you can look in your window and see the actual light bulbs, you might want to get some blinds or or curtains. (laughs) That's a really easy way to measure too. So something that we can all probably do pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a good way to involve kids too, I think, would be to maybe before bedtime, maybe in the winter, it's darker a little bit earlier, just walk around the house outside and do like a light audit. See what lights are on or maybe create a ritual where the the kids walk around the house at night and say good night to the yard or good night to their neighborhood and shut off all the lights or something like that. That could be a, a fun way to get the kids involved. Yeah, I love that. A light audit. That's awesome. That's would be really fun. I think they would really get into that or some kids. I won't speak for all kids, but <laughs> yeah. I could see my son getting really into that. So that's mm-hmm. a great idea. Do you have any other tips or know of any resources that could help us start these conversations on this topic with kids? Yeah, so the International Dark Sky Association, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, is an excellent, excellent 
way to get a lot of different resources. And they have a lot of resources for talking with their neighbors as well as as just any general audience, kids included. I do think that there are some kid-friendly ones that could be useful, such as your local natural history museum or planetarium. Here in the Twin Cities, we have the Bell Museum. They actually have star parties every once in a while, or I guess they did pre-COVID. I don't Mm. remember the status of it right now as we're recording, but that is a really good way to get them First of all, interested in the night sky. Second of all, start those conversations and um, have a good educator who's very familiar with talking with kids uh, to be able to explain some of these concepts. State parks and national parks are really great too if you have access to those. And then if you're not able to get outside or, or go to some of these places, I found that National Geographic has some really, really cool videos and, and photos on YouTube online that you can access as well. Some of them are really just gorgeous, just about inspiring that love and that beauty and respect for the night sky. And some of them are very educational as well. Those are all really fantastic resources. Thank you for sharing those. I will say that the Bell Museum here in Minnesota also has a planetarium, which I think could be really fun to kind of get spark that interest. And so maybe that could be an idea to look for a planetarium in your area. And then you mentioned the national parks and state parks. I saw that, I can't remember the name of it, but many of them are specific locations for dark skies. And so if you go on their websites, you can find these, these spots that are they, they don't have any light pollution and it's a special name and I can th- I'll throw it in the show notes because I don't think I remember it right now. But that's another way that we could start getting interested and just really showing like this is what it could look like if we had no light pollution versus a city where you see a few stars. Yeah, definitely. That's one of the big things that the International Dark Sky Association does in terms of their education and advocacy is these creation of dark sky places. And that's a pretty rigorous uh, set of criteria that parks and other locations have to meet in order to get that certification. So they're really great places. So you mentioned the International Dark Sky Organization. Can you quickly tell us a little bit about them and how they are working to reduce artificial light pollution? Definitely. So their mission is to preserve and protect the nighttime environment through environmentally responsible outdoor lighting. And I am just reading that from their, their webpage. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, they the way that they do this is a lot of advocacy for protection of the night sky and a lot of education. So they have chapters all over the world. I think they said they're on five continents wow. <laughs> out of seven. So that's pretty good. That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's really a lot of of public outreach and education in terms of empowering the public with all of these tools and resources to sort of help bring back the night, as they say. And a lot of it is, is not, you know, it's not like shaming, you know, you have light on your house and, you know, you shouldn't. It's, it's a lot of celebrating the dark skies, celebrating light and celebrating how they impact our culture and, and how we can continually continue to protect them in a very responsible way. I love that outlook of turning the tables a little bit of instead of focusing on what we're doing wrong, let's focus on what we would love to achieve and and celebrating the dark sky. I think that's that's really beautiful. Yeah, me too. So you mentioned that they're uh, broken out into chapters and you started the one for the Twin Cities chapter. So if anyone's in the Twin Cities and wants to look it up, Caitlin is the person to to contact. Um, Can you share how people can start their own? Yeah, so it's actually pretty simple. You just have to get three people in your area who are interested and uh, contact the organization. I think we just contacted their main email and they sent us back some paperwork to fill out. It's it's fairly simple. And then you need to come up with the goals for your chapter. And they 
will typically be in line with the, the, the overall association's chapter. So that's typically not an issue and some ideas for events within the next year. And so that's a, a way to get a chapter started. So they have other ways to get involved if you are not into forming a full chapter or you don't have other people interested in your area. So they have a delegate program and an advocate program as well, where individuals can be certified as, as a delegate and as a person in the community to go to. And so that's a really great way, I think, to, to be able to also form your own community, maybe without some of the, the more criteria of a, of a chapter. Yeah, and it seems like it would be something that it's kind of one of those things where it's just just need somebody to start it. So yeah. it's probably going to be other interested people. But. Yeah, I tend to find that as soon as as soon as you say I'm interested in this, you'll you'll find five other people who say, "Oh yeah, I'm interested in that too. Let's mm-hmm. do it." Yeah. And I'm sure that if you are interested in more information, you can head over to the International Dark Sky Organization website and they'll have information about how to start your own chapters or get involved in other ways, as Caitlin mentioned, if you're interested. So say that we're not interested in in participating with the organization for whatever reason, what are some other ways that we can get involved within our local community to spread awareness to this issue and also start to make some change? So I love this question and the way you phrase it, um, because I think there's a lot of of talk uh, in the sustainability and climate change communities about policy or individual actions, but really there's so much that we can do at the community level. Uh, and I know you've, you've talked about that as well on your podcast and your blog. And I think there's a lot of different ways. Talking to your neighbors is honestly the first really great way to get people involved. Perhaps your neighborhood has a block captain or other type of leader. I know ours does. And so you could organize a a sort of inner city or suburban sort of a star party where everybody on the block turns out their lights for one night. Maybe it's only an hour or two and everybody gets together and just looks up at the sky, see what you can see. And that's a really simple, great way to get some awareness in terms of uh, light pollution and also what we could just see from our own backyards. Getting involved with development projects, if that's something that's accessible to you, sitting in on city council type meetings. And I think that's easier now than ever since everything seems to be streamed. Thank you, COVID. One of the one of the upsides <laughs> yes. is that it became much more accessible. Mm. Uh, and just asking those questions, I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about it. It's such a simple thing to do of just looking for dark sky approved light fixtures or choosing warmer LED lights when a development project is starting to be proposed in your community. Asking the questions is really, really important. Yeah. Such good point. I'm a nerd, so I was doing like a little dance when you said the neighborhood star party. I thought that was <laughs> that was such a good idea. I could just see, you know, I know a lot of uh, neighborhoods are really into the take back the night. I think it's usually in August. I don't know if that's just a Minnesota thing or if it's national or international, but basically where blocks just get together, you get to close your street off and then people just have like a big potluck or just have activities and stuff to kind of get to know your neighbors. And I could see that being a perfect opportunity. It's in summer and it would just be a really fun addition to that event. And I think even next door might be a good resource too, just to kind of be more of an educational thing. Yeah, definitely. The next door for your neighborhood as well as I know our city has a, a Facebook group as well as I'm sure many other cities do too. Yeah. And I, you know, I will say that sometimes you're saying it just to ask the questions and it, it, sometimes it honestly is that simple. I'm on the sustainability committee for my city and, or our city, <laughs> and we had a resident submit a comment. They were interested in doing a tree preservation policy. It was a really long story as to how it came about, but they just wrote us a letter and we have now taken the steps. We've interviewed experts. We've worked with a ton of people and it, it looks like eventually 
eventually it's going to be put into ordinance. But it would never have happened unless these two individuals that live in the community just wrote us a letter, just wrote us a simple comment. So it's literally sometimes is that simple. It's just bringing awareness because sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. So yeah, definitely. That's such a fantastic example. I was surprised, but yeah, it it really is that, like I said, really is that simple. All right. You mentioned that the International Dark Sky Org has resources for talking to neighbors. Is there anything, maybe one or two specific talking points that you really like to kind of get us started on that conversation? Well, I think with anything, talking to your neighbors is to come at it from a perspective of, of shared values. I think that Safety is a big one here and sort of acknowledging that we, we both want our neighborhood to be safe. We both want good sleeping conditions. Uh, sometimes we hear, I, I don't want to say horror stories, but really bad, like horror stories of, of neighbors having incredibly bright lights and they shine through the, the windows. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's really an unfortunate situation that has to be addressed. But yeah, approaching it from a, a shared value sort of perspective and saying, hey, would you consider something simple at first? So turning your lights off after 10 p.m. and not before 6 a.m. or something like that. Or saying, again, coming at it from a shared perspective of saying, hey, I'm thinking about installing some motion sensors. Would you be interested in that as well? And it would protect both of our sleep hygiene. So I think that, again, just coming at it from that shared values perspective is a really great way to approach it. I think if you're not sure, money and health are usually two good <laughs> yes. ways to, to approach it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know about, about you and all the listeners, but sometimes, I mean, I'm a relatively new homeowner. So something like completely replacing my exterior light is really daunting mm, yes. <laughs> to me. But I can turn off my light at 10 p.m. or at least double check that by the time I go to bed, my light is off. Yeah, that's so true. It's it is super actionable. Or like you said, if you have kids, and that can be part of the bedtime routine. So definitely really easy to implement, which is always a plus. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so as we wrap up here, I, I just again, I find this so fascinating. And I, I really appreciate you talking to us about this today. But what are some other resources besides the International Dark Sky Organization to learn more about artificial light pollution at night. Yeah, so I mentioned some of them with the, the planetarium or and if you have a natural history museum. If you don't, a lot of these these places now are, are hosting and streaming webinars or uh, Facebook Lives, those types of things. So you, yeah, we mentioned the Bell Museum here in the Twin Cities, the American Natural History Museum as well. Uh, some of the planetariums too. The Adler Planetarium in Chicago, like I said, National Geographic. But one of the other ones that I think needs to get some more publicity here is the Audubon Society because light pollution impacts birds. And so the Audubon Society is actually a really great place to learn about light pollution as well. And recently I've been seeing more and more interest in education from pollinator-friendly groups as well. So Bee Lab, pollinator-friendly yards on Facebook, a lot of the social media is starting to, to realize that to protect pollinators, we need to do stuff at night as well. And so pollinator-friendly groups are another really great way to, to learn things. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've seen some briefly, mostly about incorporating habitat for fireflies. Yeah, yeah. But I'll have to look for more in the pollinator stuff because we'll definitely see how it could affect them too. So, okay. Um, so kind of switching gears to jumping into questions that I ask everybody. What is one of your biggest challenges raising an eco-minimalist or eco-kid right now? Oh man, for us, it's definitely managing all of the baby gear. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear it gets a little bit better when they get older, but there's just bottles and carriers mm. and 
it feels like every three months she outgrows clothes um, because she does, doesn't feel like it's because she does. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, you know, every kid and family is different. And so for us, it's been a challenge to figure out what works for us without bringing every gadget into our house. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're struggling with right now. We've been fortunate that we have a lot of family and friends that have uh, babies or kids who are growing out of baby stuff. So we've been getting a lot of secondhand stuff, which is great. Yeah, that's really nice. One common pain point is balancing time-saving convenient items with our sustainable values. Do you have any tips on how you manage that? Yes. So I've always sort of tried to focus on being an imperfect environmentalist, an imperfect sustainability advocate, even before I had a kid. So if you can, you know, half the time do things a very sustainable way, I will give myself a pat on the back, um, (laughs) giving myself some leeway and grace. Sometimes I send my daughter to daycare with a prepackaged pouch of applesauce. And sometimes I do scrambled eggs from a black owned farm scrambled with greens from my garden, you know, so Mm -hmm. really just like focusing on being sustainable and making those choices when we can, but giving ourselves grace when we can't. Yeah, absolutely. That's super important. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we didn't cover today? No, I think we had a a really good conversation. There's so much out there. Like you said, I think we could have probably talked about some of the more nerdy parts of this for (laughs) for hours. (laughs) Nerd out, yeah. Absolutely. Um, Can you share where people can find you? Sure. So I am on Instagram at Invisibly Stitched. So I share a lot of my sewing as well as sustainability. The Twin Cities Dark Sky Association is on Instagram and Facebook as just Twin Cities Dark Sky. And we also have a web page. You can just Google Twin Cities Dark Sky, or it's also linked from the Instagram and Facebook as well. And we're working on getting a newsletter up and going as well as some events this summer. So stay tuned for those. That's really exciting. And yeah, if you want some awesome sewing, mending inspiration, definitely follow Caitlin and <laughs> visibly stitched. I'm always in awe. I'm not a sewer. So I'm always in awe of the stuff that you, you make. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on here today. I really enjoyed this conversation and I learned a ton and I think other people are going to as well. Great. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you so much again for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a review on Apple podcasts and sharing. These three things are the best way to ensure that the podcast reaches other people who are trying to raise eco-minimalists. Additionally, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, as well as the link to join the Facebook community group, all in the show notes. Finally, don't forget that you can become a member of the podcast and receive benefits such as extra bonus episodes, episodes a day early, learn about guests ahead of time, and lots more. The link to becoming a member or to find out more info is also in the show notes. Oh, and one last thing. Don't forget that in order for sustainable living to be sustainable, it has to be sustainable for you. Until next time, bye.